Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, his manager, and as of the past few episodes, fueled by guilt and obligation to record these intros for the podcast because Bill is such a bad businessman, he is allergic to self-promotion. His guest today is Matt Zoe, an English electronic music producer who has spent a lot of time in both the U.S. and the U.K. and dabbles in as many genres as Bill. Over the course of his career, he's released drum and bass on Hospital Records, Trance and EDM on Anjuna Beats and Armada, and is now singularly focused on his own label, Mad Zoo, which has not only released his sophomore album, Self Assemble, but most recently an exciting compilation of up-and-coming acts on This Is Mad 2, which features Saruta, Anti-Negative, Chi, Chef Boyer Beats, and Rohan, among others. I, of course, am not allergic to self-promotion, so let me shill a bit on Bill's behalf. This podcast takes our producer, Robert, several hours each week to get in ship shape, so we ask that you please support the show by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. You can get perks like a monthly bonus episode, which we're internally debating right now what that should be for June. So if you're in Bill's Discord server or on his Facebook group, The Legal Immigrants, chuck your suggestions in there. Head over to patreon.com slash Tunes for all that info and to support this show. And remember, go to mrbillstunes.com to sign up as a hardcore Abletoneer, and he will make you a better producer. I guarantee it. Okay, I've been dying to say this. Enjoy this episode of the Mr. Bill podcast with Grammy-nominated producer, Matt Zoe. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. I appreciate you doing it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. How's uh, I, I noticed that, um, and I, I don't, I'm not sure if you were doing this before the whole pandemic thing kicked in, but how's I noticed you've been streaming a ton lately, like almost every day, right? Um, well, I slowed down a little bit. Um, yeah, at first I was streaming every day, just in like sort of like, well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> You know, right. I'm, I'm meant to play all these shows and, um, yeah, kind of did that for a while just to like keep up momentum really. And then, um, yeah, I got busy with a bunch of other stuff and now I pretty much stream only on Fridays and maybe, yeah, I'll have like a guest on during the week maybe, but mm. yeah, it's mm. been going well though. Nice. Yeah. I remember watching one of your streams. I think you were doing like max MSP stuff and I raided you and then like a hundred people came in and started spamming a copy pasta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you were just like, what's going on? <laughs> was that, was that during the, um, quarantine? Oh yeah. It must've been. Um, yeah, it was a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. How's, uh, how's quarantine going for you as an artist? Um, well at first it was kind of difficult um you know just adjusting but um you know now i've been working on these digital events uh it feels a little bit more like uh i have a purpose <laughs> before right. i was sort of waking up and you know just sort of 
forcing myself to just get in the studio and, you know, soldier on. But uh, yeah, now that I found something else to do for like a sort of day job, <laughs> making music is now a lot of fun again. <laughs> so yeah, I had a similar experience. Honestly, it was like when this thing first started, I was like, "Fuck!" Um, it almost felt like my whole like job of making music in some way, and uh, it, it almost felt in some way like it was pointless. I was like, "Oh, what's the fucking point?" And then I was just sitting around for a few weeks, like not doing anything. Um, and I don't know why it felt that way because I don't necessarily think that I make music specifically for other people to listen to. Um, although that's a you know a big part of it, obviously putting music out is kind of the the other side of making it. But um, yeah, I don't know. For the, yeah, the first few weeks was was a weird vibe for sure. I've had a pretty similar experience in that way of like over time slowly getting used to the quarantine lifestyle again. Because I think as an artist, right, you get into this routine of sort of traveling like every weekend and that becomes like just the norm to just be so fucking involved with like travel and socializing and being at all these events and then even if you consider yourself introverted and consider yourself whilst traveling to not really be like that social you realize when it's all taken away like how much you actually are right and i think that kind of fucked a lot of artists up for sure and not only that it's just like uh you know why why do we make music besides for ourselves? And why do we make the type of music we make? Um, it's like, I make dance music because I enjoy playing dance music in clubs and seeing other people dance to it. And I had, you know, a little bit of a struggle for a while, just like, well, what? why am I making this kind of music now when it's, you know, the audience, for it, it's not relevant anymore because mm. nobody's listening to it in that environment. And then I started just messing around with like, ambient stuff and you know just like trying to make stuff that's e nice easy listening music and then i was like fuck this it's <laughs> mm. just like not not what i got into music for um uh, have you have you reverted back to to making dance music again yeah and and instead of thinking like oh i'll never be able to play this out well i'll try and create the place to play it out in and create my own little world to sort of mm. re reinvent what I w was doing before. Um, For sure. I've, I've noticed a lot of people, um, even though, you know, obviously uh, you, you just mentioned dance music is generally created to be played in this like particular environment, like through a big sound system, you know, crushed against fucking 500 other people or a thousand other people in a sweaty club. Um, where the sound pressure of the system is just filling the room so immensely and, you know, there's fucking bottles of liquor going around and shit. It's just like this very specific vibe and stuff. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting to me now that that's been taken away, how many people still are listening to dance music though. And I think that that is sort of just like a, a testament to how much when we listen to music at home, we're just abstracting the environment in which we've experienced it before to enjoy it, right? Like, for instance, if you ever try and show, like, a uh, trance or something like that to somebody who's never been to, like, a, a bush or, you know, a festival in the forest that's playing that kind of music, it's almost, like, impossible for them to understand why it's interesting and cool, right? Right. Yep, exactly. It's all about the context of where it's being played. But, yeah, yeah I think it, it's it's interesting that dance music is still... As popular as ever because i think 
you know, going deeper into it, it's like more connecting with our sort of tribal past, you know, the relentless drums and stuff like that. It's like dance music is still relevant even in uh even now, you know, when we can't go to clubs because it still connects with something primal, I think, with us within us. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, so you you're British, right? I was born in London, yes. But I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know if I'd call myself British or call myself American. It's a hard it's a hard position to be. <laughs> um, but right. I'm like sort of half American, half British. Okay. How how long have you lived in America? Uh so yeah, in total, I've I've lived 19 years in America. It's pre. It, it used to be evenly matched, and now it's more. I'm more on the American side. I I was raised in Cleveland from the age of one to ten, so I sort of I learned how to speak and <laughs> be in America, and then I moved back to the UK um, when I was 11. So I learned how to um, you know be an adult in the UK and discovered dance music and all that. Okay, so so your production uh, formative years were more in Britain. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so I, I, I've only been to London once and I went there for like two weeks just to visit the guy who does all the artwork for everything I do. Um, and I just noticed over there, like all the producers that I met there who I went to their studios and stuff, even though they weren't popular or like really even playing shows or, or anything like that, just the quality of producer there is higher, I feel like, than America. And that might be like contentious to say, but that's just how I felt. Yeah, I mean, it's I like going back and forth and having lived there and having lived here, I feel like there is a tad bit of romanticism of like overseas um, music, um, especially f- from like the North American side to the British side. Um, but yeah, I think maybe there is a, a general, like better quality of ethos in London, like less, um, less fakeness, I guess, but there is still that, that huge element of it, like over here. Yeah. So I I feel like in London, it's almost like, um, well, for starters, the, the weather's like always kind of drab and gray. So more people are staying inside and just making music. Secondly, it doesn't seem like there's anywhere near as many shows or as much of a scene there as there is in America. And so the barrier to entry for playing a show there is like quite high, it seems like, just because there's not a lot of shows. So it's like you have to be really good to play the shows or whatever. And then it seems like in America, the opposite is true. There's so many shows and so many nights and so many events and so many like curated, you know, trippy Tuesdays and wacky wubby Wednesdays and shit like that in like clubs all over the country that the quality for entry to go and play one of those nights is not that high like you you can almost get away with doing like the bare minimum and still playing shows and I feel like maybe some of this plays into um what I was talking about yeah absolutely Uh, yeah the barrier to entry is probably lower in the U.S. but again it's a much bigger country there's 500 or 600 million people I forgot the exact Uh, I think it's like 350 350 okay well, either way, um, yeah, the UK is, is still, and all, yeah, it's smaller, and it's the like the gatekeepers are more established and more long lived. <laughs> I feel like mm. he, in America, it's a lot easier to be an up and up and comer and get respect, and um, yeah, 
whereas in the UK, it feels like you have to have been around a little bit. Right, yeah, it's kind of like a bit nepotistic or whatever, oh, yeah. where they'll sort of just put on put on people who have been in, yeah, like pay respects to people who have been in the scene longer and shit like that, even though necessarily they may not have more fans or be better producers or anything like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I've never actually played a show or been booked to play a show in... Uh, pretty much anywhere in Europe or um, or the UK. I've The closest I've come is uh, Israel, which I've played like five times, but I don't know if I'm going to play Israel again because every time I play there, I seem to lose a few fans. Um, yeah, that's, that's weird that Israel is super receptive and nowhere else. Is it? I, I don't know. I mean, I know Israel, Israelis are super into Cytrons. Mm-hmm might be that connection there um but I, th- I think that's pretty much what it is yeah yeah but um yeah there is definitely a an atlantic divide in dance music and i'd say even stronger since post edm explosion um yeah it's it's obvious when i moved here <clears throat> my bookings in europe and yeah uk just went down completely to almost none I was meant to play in France this year, but obviously that didn't happen. But that was going to be the first time I've played in Europe since like 2015, <laughs> something ridiculous. Oh, damn. It, <clears throat> um, why do you think that happened? Like why have the bookings in Europe slowed down? Besides the obvious, like, you know, just logistics of it, <laughs> it's obviously cheaper to book European DJs in Europe because you don't have to pay for the flights and and then the other way around it's expensive for europeans to get the visa to play in the states Mm. so yeah it just instantly creates this divide um and yeah then there's like the stylistic and like culture divide i think the american dance music culture and the european dance music culture are similar but they're also very different Right. Well, it's almost like um, hip hop roots in America versus like these sort of more techno roots or something in Europe, right? Right. Exactly. So it's kind of like in America, it seems like you had the hip hop thing start and then you had like, I guess, Detroit techno and and stuff like that. But then it seems to have sort of, well, I guess they're two different scenes really, but it seems like on the bass music side of things, it it all kind of, in my opinion, it looks to to seem like it started with hip hop and then sort of evolved into this like trap and dubstep and then this hybrid EDM thing or something. Yeah. I guess you could say that. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, like I was going through your stuff, uh, I don't know, a little while ago now. And I just noticed that it seems like you started out as like almost a trance artist. And then, well, I guess like you probably started out as a lot of people do being in bands and shit like that. But it seems like you started as like a trance artist in electronic music and then sort of went to drum and bass and then are doing like halftime now or something. I don't, I don't know. Um how do you feel about making like all sorts of different genres in music? Cause I, I do the same thing. Like I, I make a lot of electric, like I do mousetrap stuff and I've released a uh, electro and stuff on, on mousetrap. And then I've also released, you know, tons of IDM on my own label. And I've released like a bunch of ambient shit and like just a, a swath of shit. And I find it impossible or not impossible, but like very difficult to sort of brand myself as a, cohesive artist to event by talent buyers or or even people listening you know like i'll put something out and they'll be like oh but that wasn't the reason i got into you what's this you know and it's just very hard to to become like a packaged 
thing that you can sell to someone. But some people manage to do it. Like Dead Mouse managed to do it. Um, he makes IDM, he makes house, he makes trance, he makes whatever. And I guess just because the biggest tracks are his, like Strobe and all that shit that got big were just this like four to the floor thing. People just see him as that now. And uh, But it almost seems like he can, he can do whatever and, and get away with it. Do, do you have this issue, I guess, is my question of like um, making a bunch of different stuff and then trying to to package yourself to to events or agencies or talent buyers or whatever and, and have a or, or even on the fan reception side do you have the the problem of um you know going into a club and playing a set that maybe the fans thought you weren't going to play and then getting some weird receptions yeah i definitely have a problem with that um you know i i start when i started um i, I was actually already releasing drum and bass and trance at the same time so it's like I, I started really varied when I first got into production. I was making all sorts of stuff, more varied than I am now, even uh, just trying anything, really. And that's just what ended up happening as I got into drum and bass and the more trancey side of stuff on the other end of it. But then, yeah, um, trying to market myself has always been difficult. And I think no matter what you do, you end up specializing in something, you know, I, I might be able to like produce most genres, but really I'm I feel like I'm I ex- I excel most in like trance, house, and drum and bass, just because those are what I'm familiar with. But yeah, when it comes to the marketing side, in recent years I would just like split it up. Um, so if a, if a venue wanted to book me, they would either get you know Matzo drum and bass set, Matzo um, trance set, you know. Or, yeah, just basically trying to split up <laughs> the different factors of my musical taste into, yeah, I wish I wish I thought about it from the get-go, but then again, that would have limited my progress as an artist because I wouldn't have had the freedom to do whatever I wanted and explore. And yeah, it, it limited me in some ways, but I do, definitely don't regret it because yeah. it, yeah, it, it made me into the artist I'm now. And also, it's never too late to create a, a whole other project. And, you know, look at Damon album, Albin with uh, the gorillas. It's like, it's never too late to just try something new. And it's like, I, I see my whole career so far as has been like the schooling and, you know, um, and my relatively small success it like feels like a graduation to go do something bigger so yeah yeah i try not to regret that (laughs) um i never stuck to one style or anything because i yeah i don't feel like the mat zone name is the be all and end all of what i'm going to do in my life you know totally yeah i feel the same way i feel like um because not only do i write a bunch of different music but i also just do a bunch of shit right like i release tutorials i do this podcast i uh you know play shows of in a bunch of different projects um you know i run a label i run uh, both a, a record label releasing music and a sample pack label like releasing samples and and they all are like tied to the mr bill name in some way um and i think about it sometimes in the same way like should i have packaged this all differently to like sell it and then i think about it as just maybe that's a some weird thought that's coming out of some place of you know fucking successful capitalism bullshit stuff in my brain and 
and really, um, I would have wanted to do all the same things anyway. So who the fuck cares like how it's being sold to people if they can't you know, understand it, then it's kind of, I mean, it affects me, but it's kind of their problem, right? I think it just depends on what scale you're comfortable with at existing. It's like, mm. um, if, yeah, I, th- I think if either of us like, you know, packaged ourselves nicely from the beginning and had a really good marketing plan and <laughs> yeah, we might, we both might be at a more successful level than we are now, but we might not be as happy. We might not be as fulfilled as artists. We might not like feel as accomplished <laughs> even because, mm. you know, we only stuck to one path. So it's a give and take. And I, I'm, I feel comfortable at the scale I'm in. Like, I, I feel like I, I have enough respect and enough, like, um, reason to keep going, you know? That's all I need is just, like, um, encouragement to keep going and then I'm happy. I don't need to be a hugely successful artist to, for that to happen. So, um, yeah. Speaking of like keeping going, um, I read, so I was like just doing a little bit of, uh, reconnaissance, uh, before this, just to, to like figure out some talking points and stuff. And I read somewhere in an interview in like 2017, you said you were going to go do other things in life and stop doing music. Um, what, what happened with like, why, I guess, why did you have that thought process? Cause I've had the same thought proce- process for my own reasons. Yeah. That was a few years ago after a pretty difficult time in my life. Uh, yeah, it was like a big, big turning point in my life. And yeah, after that, I didn't do music for a while. It was like six months where I couldn't really write any music. Yeah, I think it just, (laughs) that was me saying that at the time because that was genuinely how I felt and that, that was the case. But yeah, it took some time for me to recover and yeah, I found the love for it again and it grew 10 times stronger as well so yeah that's just what happens sometimes sometimes things don't seem as interesting anymore or don't feel right and you just leave it and then you come back to it with a new fresh set of ears and eyes and yeah a a more open mind i guess i almost feel like i have um uh seasons i guess is the best way to describe it like I'll have a a season where all I want to do is like start new tunes. Right. And then I'll start kind of in the back of my mind, getting a little bit self-conscious of that and frustrated and uh, start questioning my ability to even finish music and just be like, Oh, you're just a fucking dumb, dumb who keeps starting whips and like, you're never going to finish anything, but then kind of get into this other season where you're just like, actually there's like a whole album here. I'm going to just going to work on these and finish that. And then there's like, you know, other seasons where you don't feel like writing music at all and i think i'm it's taken me like a long time of sort of objectively almost looking at my behavior and just realizing that i just have these ebbs and flows in that way and just to be comfortable with that so i totally understand that absolutely and yeah you have to figure that out and then know how to cope with it and the way i cope with it is like i don't force myself ever to start actual music i will only force myself to do sound design and even sound design I'll just if I have to force myself I'll just make some random texture white noise crap (laughs) just force myself to make anything and something will always come out of that 
I'll have an idea to make something else. And out of that, I'll have another idea to make some other sound. And then a track might appear out of that, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's really yeah. about not forcing yourself and just realizing that you're in a cycle of seasons, as you say. And mm-hmm. yeah, the seasons might not be balanced either. It might be a, a really long winter and a extremely short spring and summer. <laughs> I naturally just get things done that way because when I'm in the sort of spring and summer, so to speak, of of my creative cycle, it's I I don't have any problem making the most of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> um. Yeah, I saw a serum patch that you made, which was like a rainforest thing or whatever. That was pretty cool. Um, speaking of sound design, I for, for the fucking life of me, could have never been able to get into doing like pure sound design sessions for some reason. Like every time I try to do sound design sessions, I just, um, I, I don't know. I Like I always just very quickly, it turns into me making music out of the sound that I'm making. Well, that's very, that's a good thing then. I mean, if that just means that you're always inspired to make music, when you hear a sound, it'll give you ideas. I mean, mm. for me, it's like I, I, I'll have months where I just don't feel like starting an, a musical idea, and I just feel like making being a a weird mad scientist <laughs> in the lab mm. concocting sounds. Um, but yeah, that gives me a whole audio library of shit to play with when I do go to make music and then the music writing process becomes super quick. Right. See, to me, I, I feel like that is more positive, like the ability to make these big libraries for yourself to, to work on and being able to compartmentalize the work in that way to me seems like a, a positive thing because it's just difficult for me to do that. And I think the reason why is... And, uh, is I would never like consider myself a proactive artist, right? Like I never almost ever get an idea in my head and go like, oh, that would be a good musical idea and then make it. It's almost always the other way around. It's I, I would consider myself a reactive artist. So either I hear something and like from somebody else and then I go, oh, that gives me an idea. Like they didn't explore this this concept of that melodic idea or something like that. So I'll start working on something of my own based around you know some other thing or like i was just saying with sound design i'll make a sound and then that will sort of give me these reactive ideas too would you put yourself say more in the one category over the other or would you say it just sort of depends yeah i mean yeah it's it's de- it depends what season i'm, I'm in <laughs> right <laughs> yeah when i'm when i'm super inspired um i'll hear something and um yeah it'll just make me want to figure out every aspect of that and try and create a variation of that that's more true to me um so yeah most of my music is actually made that way i'd say um where proactively uh reactively reactively right absolutely um i almost think proactive art is like bullshit i think it's some like romantic thing that a lot of people like to think is the case but even if you look back on just art forever, ninety percent of it is like some dude making a painting for a woman, or you know somebody um, 
writing a poem about a flower or something it's like in that case like if he wrote a poem about a flower or made the piece of art for the woman was it proactive or was it reactive like did the woman give him that idea and did the flower give him that idea to write the poem and stuff yeah it's all reactive there's no i i believe there's no output without input no matter what the case is um inspiration doesn't come out of thin air um you know (laughs) every good idea was inspired by another good idea for sure Mm mm-hmm Right. In, in saying that, then, do you think it's possible to systematically solve the problem of, uh, in quotation marks, never being inspired by just, say, creating some sort of tool or plugin that just generates stimulus to spit at you to give you reactive ideas? No, because your brain isn't always ready to accept those ideas and, and put two and two together. Um, I, I think... Uh, just letting it happen naturally is is the best way. As I said, like I, I feel like having to force yourself to <laughs> to make an idea um, and execute some kind of complete idea is just too much pressure for most people, including me. Um, and music should always always be fun, in my opinion. If it's not fun, then you can hear it in the music. <laughs> You can hear the struggle and the labor, and then it becomes a struggle and labor to listen to, in my opinion. (laughs) Do you notice that more with your own music, or do you notice that also in other people's music? And then have you also had cases where you've heard that in somebody else's music and then confirmed with them that that was the case? Absolutely, yeah. Both in my own and other people. Um, Like, I had a friend who was working on this one tune for, like, a year. (laughs) and I've worked on tunes for years, but like off and on. But he only—he literally only worked on this one tune. He didn't work on any other tunes. He didn't work on any sound design. He just worked on this one tune for a whole year. And it, it was terrible. And he admitted it himself. It was terrible. And you just couldn't let this one track go. And you could hear it in the music and in the, in the mix and everything, just how hard he tried to make it work even though it wasn't working and that's and that's like an extreme case <laughs> you know um but i feel like it's it it shows in the music if you're not having fun if you're not inspired and yeah if you're not inspired you're not having fun there's no there's no way you can make music without being inspired and have fun it's like <laughs> it then just becomes like placing blocks randomly <laughs> I think everyone's had that that experience, right? Like I've I for sure had that experience of going into the studio and being like, all right, going to force myself to make music because I feel like I, I guess the reason you want to force yourself to make music is like you enjoy the feeling of f- fulfillment that you that you've gotten by making something successfully in the past. You also enjoy when you do nail it, seeing people's reactions to it, and like feeling really fulfilled in that way too so there's like there's a lot on the line for like why you would want to do it because it's the best feeling ever when you nail it and then i can see i can see the reasons for forcing it but i think a lot of artists including myself have had that experience of forcing it and then coming out the other end just being like well that was a forced piece of shit (laughs) i i've never had the experience of where i've like forced a tune and then it came out good it just never it's never happened for me i don't know about anyone else but um have you ever worked on um film or games or uh stuff like that yeah i I did uh the ouch the trailer um music 
the outro trailer music, sorry, the credits music for this uh, sci-fi B movie called Robots, uh, Our Robot Overlords. Okay. And did you find doing that kind of work because there's such a deadline on that sort of work that you had to force anything there? That, not on that one because that was particularly fun. The director gave me pretty much free reign to do whatever I wanted. So that was awesome. But I have worked on like trailers um, as well. I did the trailer for Rainbow Six Siege with... Oh, fuck yeah, dude. I just had him on the podcast too. <laughs> nice. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Um, yeah, so we worked on that together and that was all right. It's not... I didn't come away from that feeling like, ah, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But it was an interesting experience and um, I still get offered work and I still do demos for ads you know because they it's always like a pitch you're always competing against like 10 other people with these Mm. kind of things at least so i do those it's it is a fun experiment because it does push you and challenge you but yeah it's not something that i would wake up in the morning and think fuck i really want to make a trailer (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i did a I, i scored an entire nicholas cage film a few years ago called mum and dad and uh it was demanding like it took me about a year to do it and uh it was like exactly what we're talking about with the forced work versus not it was almost all forced (laughs) and um because it was just so demanding like i just needed to get so many pieces of music written so quickly for this thing um so I wasn't super happy with it when it came out, but listening back to it, I really like it actually. Like I, if I listen back to the, the soundtrack, it doesn't sound that forced to me anymore for some reason. But at the time I remember listening to it being like, this is whatever. Well, what, were you given like a lot of leeway to do what you wanted or were you ru- like running under strict um, instructions? It was a bit of both. So um, essentially the director... I guess wanted to do some John John Carpentery type s- stuff like the thing, so he sent me that and was like, "I want it to be sort of like this, but also just do your own thing." And th- it's the same director who um who did Crank and Crank Two, so he got Mike Patton to do those. And I think when you get Mike Patton to do anything, you don't really get to tell him what to do, right? So, uh, <laughs> uh, so he's pretty comfortable, I think, with with letting people do what they do so that was cool um but there was like some vague instructions there but i I made so many temp pieces like so many demos before something actually gelled with him and he liked it so there was just like i think in total i made like 300 pieces of music or something and only like 30 of them made it into the to the movie yeah that's how it is with these projects though it's like you know working on a big team it's like art art by committee and you've got to work in in that system but yeah i think with those kind of projects it, it is more like good better in hindsight because <laughs> you see the collective work of everyone and how how your work has improved the project overall and that gives you the satisfaction but yeah at the time of working on it it's <laughs> you don't get any satisfaction because yeah, it's like the opposite of what you're talking about with 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 work being you know something that you actually wanted to do, and it, it's absolutely the exact opposite thing. It's like work that you like have to do exactly on on a certain timeline and stuff like that. Yeah, 
and yeah, it's it's also about making those things fun though. Like, um, you know, if if somebody asks you to do something, like try and do some like do something that you could do easily with a contact patch. <laughs> it's like mm. it's more fun to like try and do it the hard way of like um, you know finding the instrument that you're looking for and recording it maybe or you know mm. trying do you know um, manipulate something. Mm. Yeah, do you know Tom Holkenberg, Junkie XL or whatever? Yeah, junk, yeah, of course. Yeah, so he's got some tutorials on a YouTube channel where he kind of um, outlines his process for making some soundtracks and he talked about the tomb raider one and what he did is he got drums specifically built from like these amazonians or whatever and then shipped them to america and then recorded like multi-sampled all of them and made his own contact instrument out of these like bespoke drums yeah exactly and i i wonder how much of that is like yes he was looking for the, like the perfect sound quality but really he just wants this is like his playground you know, I, I love his YouTube channel, by the way. It's like one of my favorites. Um, and yeah, it's because you can see he's ha he has so much fun. He goes in every day. Everything's always turned on and he's just in a playground. And that's that's the point is you can hear that in the scores he makes and the music he makes and everything. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I guess like at, at that point when you're what, like, however old he is 45 years old or 50 or however much like he's just been doing this forever and he's just having to go <laughs> yeah i guess you have to find a f kind of figure out ways to reinvent your job right exactly and yeah not just for um if you're doing scoring stuff i feel like it's this applies very much to even if you're making your own music it's like finding ways to make it fun no matter what like for the longest time I was stuck just like using my DAW and my plugins, trying to figure out everything with that and getting good results. For the longest time I was like just doing um, all the stuff in the box and getting better at sound design and mixing and everything, but not having fun anymore because I was just using the same tools, same ideas that I was before, just getting better at it. But I wasn't having fun and it and it was showing in my music I, I felt like I think it was about a year and a half ago I started just buying various toys to play with like synths and the other pedals and you know just anything that I can just fiddle with and have some fun and yeah maybe it sounds better but really it's just about having new toys to play with and making it fun and also making your studio a place that you want to be in <laughs> Yeah, obviously there's like this uh, whole analog versus digital argument, right? And there's all, all these people who are always like, oh, you get analog because it sounds better and because it, you know, you'll get a better quality signal out of it, et cetera, et cetera. But really, I think the main benefit of it is exactly what you're saying. It just makes the, it, it just makes you think differently about the way you're creating, right? Like versus if you're just opening Serum all the time. And even though Serum is like a much more able and much cheaper synthesizer than probably like any modular synthesizer you're ever going to build um the modular stuff will always make you just think about shit a little bit differently and that's kind of what where the fun is of it and then also taking the stuff that you learn doing stuff with like modular synthesizers or like hardware effects pedals like the, the empress effects soya or like 
just any other way of making music even instruments right like playing drum kits or playing guitars it'll always like when you go back to use these other tools like say serum or whatever it'll make you think about those tools differently too yeah exactly um yeah i i don't think it's a sound quality thing at all even though it is also a sound quality thing that's not i don't think that's why people still have analog gear i mean you can get as good a sound quality out of digital stuff i think i mean i think better right like you get usually in some cases for sure um but yeah i it's it's more and all yeah besides the tactile nature of it, it's it's also just the allowing for random accidents because electronic music in the box it's very easy to do everything so precise and have everything be controlled no sounds out of place nothing you know everything quantized everything um just feeling like a bit stale whereas when you're working with analog equipment it's really difficult <laughs> to make things sound perfect and stale because of the nature of the equipment so that's another uh, benefit of it but right you get like all these sort of weird slewing and like stuff that won't clock properly and shit like that exactly and up until the point where i started collecting analog stuff i was already trying to get that randomness in the box um but again yeah it was like i was getting good results but i wasn't having fun so it's not about the result it's about the journey for for me right. make music yeah speaking of journeys uh i want to talk about drum and bass a little bit because that's something you've had a bunch of experience with um i've tried to write drum and bass a few times and i i'm under the impression that it's just the hardest genre to make it's like you, you can if there's any genre that you like can't be a slacker in and get good results it's drum and bass right I suppose I it, it might be that it's hard or it's just hard coming from the perspective of somebody that's made like four to the floor stuff mostly or like um, slower stuff just because mm. of the speed you have to work with and yeah the general sonic characteristics of the genre it just seems harder but I feel like it's just what you're used to and it, it it's like the way you think about it is what makes it hard because it's it's really counterintuitive from like this is something that took me years to learn um you know i i used to think about drum and bass as a house or as a trance producer would and you have to you it's like with drum and bass you have to throw all of that shit out the window because it's it's not applicable because you're dealing it's like you're flipping the whole focus of the mix Whereas in trance or house, all the focus of the mix is on the kick and the melodies and the whatever, you know, content is um, up front. Whereas like the the key things in drum and bass are the drums and the bass. And they're all and it's like they have to hit at different frequencies because you have to make room for like a, a whole different um mix landscape almost if you want to put it like that right speaking of uh what you're talking about now i read somewhere that you said mixing you think of mixing like painting that's interesting you want to explain that a little more well it's really difficult to find any material right now about like 
how to get better mixes as like a complete theory. You know, it's like, here's how to get better kick. Here's how to get a better, like, here's how to make your vocals sound better. Or it's never like, here's why that makes your vocals sound better. And I feel like the closest thing we have to that is art theory. Because there's so much written about um, what makes a good painting. And like, how, how do you manipulate a 2D image to make you feel immersed in a 3D space? There's tons of material on that with art, but no, I mean, there are some people drawing analogies from art to, um, to describe making music. But yeah, I feel like it, it goes so much deeper than that. Every aspect of art theory can be applied to music theory. Just like, for instance, just like the basic idea of contrast and texture. <laughs> The same way that you get contrast in a painting just by like having some things be super detailed, some things be super loose, some things be uh, super high contrast in terms of like values, and then some things be super faint. Um, that makes a good image that your that your eye is drawn to, and yeah, the same thing happens in music when you're listening to a really nice mix down. It's because there's really good balance of all these different concepts like stereo image and the the basic like character of the sounds like you can like I've noticed that the best music usually has like really contrasty elements where you'll have a really like distorted lead element and then something behind it that's really airy and clean and you know it's like everything can be applied from art theory to music theory it's just you have to change the terminology a bit and you probably also have to have your own unique way of reconciling the two things right like so for instance um i mean obviously some things are easily reconcilable like if in art theory you're talking about something that's dark versus something in music that's dark. I mean, you're probably going to talk, be talking about something that's more filtered and subdued and maybe the note qualities are like more minor-y and, and stuff like that versus something that's bright in art. It's going to be like more major and maybe brighter, like more high frequencies and maybe it's louder and stuff like that. But I mean, so to reconcile those is easy, but but then when you get into like the thick of it, like all, it's going to be hard to reconcile certain things, right? Like texture could mean... That, you know, or, or types, texture types, I guess, could be like very different for different people. Exactly. That's all subjective. But what's not subjective, I feel like, is the contrast between those different things. Like, sure, one sound might feel crunchy or sharp to one person and smooth and airy to another. But whatever's, you know, layered on top of that to give it contrast will sound different in some way. Um and yeah, that's what creates that little sonic nugget of goodness <laughs> that people look right. out for in music is is contrast, drama, and yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I find I get... So I have a YouTube channel where I do a lot of tutorials. So, um, so by proxy of doing that, I get asked a lot of questions about Ableton. And like I get asked... The, classic shit all the time like um you know uh how loud should my sub be should i've heard i've read in some interview that it should be negative six <laughs> or like just some completely arbitrary number 
but I think like the what what you're saying kind of answers that too, right? It's like it's all relative to anything else that's happening in the mix. Like if, if, uh, they call it a mix down or a balance because it's a mixture of things or a balance of things, right? So it's like negative six to what? Like you could just have your sub sitting at negative six, and it could just be a negative six dB sine wave that plays for four minutes straight. And then it's not a mix and it's still the same thing that the guy said in the interview, but it's meaningless because it's not referenced against literally anything else in in the mix or in the song. Yeah, there's so much there's so much dogma to do with that besides that. It's like, yeah, it's like you have to have a minus six dB mix down, minus six dB luffs. I've heard that a lot. Or like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, uh, uh, it's bullshit because you can... So, like the biggest one is like, oh, you don't, you shouldn't have your sub in stereo. Well, the reason you shouldn't have your sub in stereo is because most likely you want to have your lead elements and stuff like chords and stuff be super, be a little bit wider and have have more room to play with with the stereo field in there, right? So the reason why most people don't have their sub in mono is because it's it it would be too wide overall, you know, like. The sub is is usually mono because it it's contrasting with the th- other things that are super wide. But if you ever tried it, you can have a super wide kick and sub, and then make everything else mono, and it will sound great. Um, mm, yeah, I think the other reason is because a lot of clubs and stuff like that have their crossovers set to be like what eighty or whatever the fuck sixty or whatever, and they usually have everything running below that in mono, right? Or they don't have a stereo sub configuration. They just have all their subs sitting in the middle of the stage and then the tops are the ones that they have configured stereo, right? Yeah, exactly. Imagine imagine all sound systems, like imagine the standard for setting up sound systems was putting all the tops right in the middle and all the subs right out to the sides. <laughs> right, that would be funny. <laughs> but, you know, if, who knows, if, if at some point in history that became the norm, that might have been the norm. It's just we're used to hearing subs in mono and everything else wider. It's right. But I, yeah. Well, there's some something to be said for familiarity too, right? Like if if all the subs and uh, are in mono and all the tops are wide in ninety percent of music that you've ever heard, then hearing that is usually going to sound more comfortable to you, right? Exactly. But again, I've heard mixes where like the kick and the sub are super wide and then there's loads of stuff that's just mono and it works because there's enough um, balance there to support that mix decision. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I've never really played around with that. I, I've played around with um, one thing I like to do. I do this actually quite often is I'll have a section um, that's like super wide and a lot going on. And then, you know, usually in drops, you have a switch, right? Like 16 bars in. A lot of the times I'll make my switches like completely mono and have like three elements happening. It's like kind of kind of goes from like this 400 IQ galaxy brain shit to just like two IQ. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's what I love about is that whole th- thing about contrast can be applied to every aspect of production, not only just like the sound design and the frequencies, but over time and yeah. Mm. you got to be careful with contrast too though because i mean if you want to relate it back to art um there's some paintings made by people who don't really know what they're doing probably you know it's just like fluoro orange next to fucking fluoro green or something and you're like oh that's not not the choice i would have made but <laughs> right. 
but yeah, I mean, I think you can get away with those choices if the other, like, if the other aspects of that painting do have contrast. And I'm not, yeah, not talking just about color and value, like contrast between like hard edges and soft edges or, you know, contrast between a lot of detail and not a lot of detail or contrast between sh uh, pointy shapes and not so pointy shapes. Um, you know, you can get away with bold choices if the other things fit within that sort of balance overall, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think the same can be said on more of a macro level too, like um, DJ sets, right? Uh, for instance, like if you play a whole set of just like techno music from the same label and the same artists, it kind of by the end just, I mean, it has an overarching curated vibe that sounds very cohesive, but I almost find I get bored of those kind of sets in about 10 minutes. Yeah. Whereas if you see somebody playing a set where they, they're just mixing all sorts of shit next to each other and they're doing it very flawlessly, but they're still like making these 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 very conscious and well thought out decisions to mix like you know a drum and bass track next to like an 8-bit chip tune remix of zelda and then like the next thing is some old hip-hop rap track that yeah you know and then the next thing is like a meme and then the next thing is like you know another hard halftime tune or something like and, and if you can yeah sorry go on i sorry i sorry to interrupt i was just gonna say that's not um variety at that point that's monotony when you're <laughs> when you change everything everything up so dr dramatically each track or each sound is so different that becomes monotonous because you it's like white noise you think so well that i, th I think there's ways that you can do it where it's like very well curated for instance a good example of this is yeti um he's just so good in my opinion at make like and and actually the the things that i was just mentioning were things that i've heard him do in a set and I don't, I, yeah, I would disagree. I don't think it sounded monotonous. I think it sounded very engaging and interesting. I'm sure it was related in some way. It, like, oh, yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, you have to, yeah, obviously think about it properly and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I meant is like, um, sometimes people think, well, it has to, you know, there has to be variety and they go too far the other way <laughs> of mm -hmm. like trying to fit everything into this box. It's like using too many colors on your palette and then everything just becomes you know white gray or whatever gray, yeah um yeah i mean it has to be tasteful and if it could uh suit my taste that would be great yeah <laughs> right <laughs> said said every opinion person ever yeah i I, is it, I think that is just comes down to having a varied taste but no matter how varied your taste is i feel like everyone's taste is related to their experiences in life and, and that will make it all cohesive in some way um, mm. and that's probably why we like music with like vocals in it and we like stuff that's 4-4 four, four, right because everyone can talk and or most people can talk and most people can walk so you know if you're walking that's sort of a one-two movement and obviously talking is talking so I mean we, we very quickly I think uh, will look to things that are 4-4 four, four and have vocals in them as familiarity I never thought about that in terms of 4-4 four, four, but yeah that makes a lot of sense but of course like the first thing that we latch onto as a child is the sound of a human voice so it, that makes t t total sense but yeah the walking thing that that makes a ton of sense as well now i think about it 
Right. I mean, it's probably why, uh, you know, a lot of four, four music feels very comfortable and a lot of, uh, like house music and shit feels somewhat comfortable. I mean, what, what tempo do we walk at? Probably like 80 BPM. Yeah. I mean, depends, <laughs> depends on I, some people walk too slow and <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm a fast walker, so I get really frustrated. Like walking behind people sometimes <laughs> dude i almost find it harder to walk slow than i do to walk fast yeah it's 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 like you have to let gravity do its thing <laughs> yeah exactly like if you're walking fast it's kind of like shit just is happening but if you're walking slow it's kind of like you're having to use your muscles more or something exactly you're not letting the inertia carry you you're... yeah that's a good point like if you start walking and you're already at like a good pace it's probably easier to just keep going than <laughs> it is to stop. I wonder which uses more or less energy. I guess stopping probably uses more energy on the front end, but then because you've stopped, then you're conserving energy from that point on. So you probably like recoup your losses pretty quick. Yeah, and if you're on even a slight downhill incline, then it's that is just multiplied. <laughs> oh, dude. So San Francisco is the fucking worst for this. Uh, yeah, I, I moved to San Francisco uh, at the start of this year in January, and the hills around here are insane. Mm-hmm. But I, it's, it must be nice like having to walk up hills all the time because <laughs> it's kind of cool i mean it's good for exercise and yeah, it's a good point yeah some people are in ohio walking on <laughs> i used or, in ohio so yeah exactly. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i played a, a show in columbus late last year hey youtube hey chill out dude so my cat always does this shit where she she brings a toy from another room to me and just does this shit and I googled why. I was like, why, do cat, why does my cat bring me a toy and meow at me? And apparently they do it because they think you're a shitty hunter. So they're like bringing you something to eat. Basically. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, he's like, oh, I, I, never, I never see you hunting. So you're probably starving. So here's like food. <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. They're so thoughtful. Right. Well, fuck, man. Um, I really appreciate you doing this podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I found it really interesting. Yeah, it was super fun. Yeah, I'd love to have you on again, maybe in, I don't know, a year or something. It'd be cool to have you on with Matt Lang as well, because I had a really interesting conversation with him like last week or whatever. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, I'm, I'll be free for the next two years, so... <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah I, hopefully we can do it in person next time I, so when i first started this podcast i was always doing them in person and i kind of like made a pact to myself to never not do them in person but then obviously this happened and i was like well uh hopefully this like uh you know just blows over in a few months and then you know obviously the more this goes on the more i see that that's not going to be the case and and also the more i look into history about stuff like the bubonic plague or the the spanish flu or the black death or like just any of that shit um you, you look at the the dates and it, it, it lasts a few years so yeah exactly um ever all the health officials are saying it's going to be like well at least two years until we can go back to work um but yeah so that's like two years if, if it's two years until you can go back to work that's two years until music events at least will happen again yeah yeah exactly but i guess you can travel freely before then probably but you just can't have like people in the same space like more than 100 people or something that's insane but yeah 
I mean, we'll see. If Donald Trump is saying we're going to have a vaccine by January 2021, I'm going to say it's January 2022 at least. Yep. And even that deployment <laughs> of that vaccine has never... It's going to take a while. But yeah, deployment of vaccines has never been like easy or quick. <laughs> so I, I got tested last week or something and it came back negative. And then yesterday I got the blood test for the antibodies and I have not got my result for that yet. Good luck. Um, yeah let's see how it goes well yeah congrats on being tested negative although it's like i if i was to be tested i i would kind of hope that i had you know already had it and produced the antibodies even though they're saying it's like not um not a sure immunity against it right you can you can get reinfected yeah i just i feel like i would feel more reassured knowing that I had it and <laughs> whatever. Because there was a little period where I, I did have like a headache for like three days. and But that was it. And then it went away. And I, sh I should see if that was anything to do with Corona. But uh. So at the start of all of this in March, like mid-March, mid right? I like went down to LA, hung out with some friends there and then flew back. And when I got back, I was super sick like not not like i could still like get out of bed and shit but like my chest was fucking on fire i had a dry cough um i i was like i had body pains uh if i was like walking up even the slightest of inclines like my whole chest would burn and i and i was coughing up um yellow phlegm and shit and i googled it and it seemed like all the things pointed towards bronchitis. And at the time I had it, probably more people on the planet had bronchitis than coronavirus. So it's actually at the time I had it more likely that it was bronchitis than coronavirus, but I still am curious. So that's why I got the test. Right. I mean, yeah, all the symptoms sound very similar. So yeah, for sure. I mean, the only things I didn't have, I don't remember losing my taste. I don't remember uh, headaches and I don't remember I did I don't think I had a fever but I don't know because I didn't take my temperature I have like this infrared temperature taken now I can just point it at my head and shoot it like a gun yeah and uh I take my temperature every day yeah I've tried to find like a bunch of different people's like a testimony of their experience and yeah it's, it seems to be like really different for everyone no you know some people have one or two of the symptoms some people have none of the symptoms some people have it really bad so it's yeah it's really hard to to tell without a test right yeah exactly well at least they're getting on to the testing now if they can't do the the vaccine for a while at least we can like figure out how many people have it and at least get good data yeah 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 it's important for sure well man thanks again i really uh, i really appreciate the, you taking an hour out of your time to chat with me hey yeah my pleasure uh, is there anything you want to tell people, like where, where can people go check out your stuff and what kind of stuff are you working on and all of that kind of stuff, if you want to plug anything? Yeah, I guess by the time this has gone out, my first single will come out. Um, I don't know how close it will be to the second single, but yeah, I've got an album coming out um, in October, I think. But And is yeah. that on Mad, Mad Zoo on your own label? No, that's on Anjuna. Okay, um, so it's more like a 4-4 four, four thing? Yeah, it's all within a sort of set tempo range as well. It's like the most like rigid I've been <laughs> with myself. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to be allowed to announce the full album by the time this podcast goes out. But Okay, well, let me know. And if you 
Yeah, we can edit it. Let me know what date you plan on putting out, and then I'll... <laughs> Perfect, man. All right, well, thanks again. Yeah, cheers. Thanks. All right, have a good one. You too. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded twice a week by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. I don't